0: A small clearing in the forest was Carol's favorite place. She could lie on her back beneath the black canvas of sky. When her mother was alive, they would spread a yellow cloth and sit and eat apples. Carol cannot remember anything her mother said, only the sound of her voice, and that she sometimes took off her shoes and unfastened her hair so that it tumbled like ribbon upon her shoulders and neck. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm talking to Simon Van Venboy, whose latest novel, Night Came With Many Stars, is a stunning tribute to hope in humanity. No matter how many atrocious things his characters do, others are ready to perform acts of unselfish kindness. Carol's father gambles her away to a man who rapes her. An old Cherokee man at the poker game appears in his old pickup, just as Carol's about to collapse on the side of the road the stories weave back and forth in time so that readers slowly understand the family connections and the writing is gripping and poetic. Hi, Simon. Thanks for joining me today.
1: Oh, you're very welcome. How are you?
0: Good. So how did you decide to name this novel based on William Steig's children's book? Our kids love that book, so did we.
1: Uh, I think because... Um... The um, idea of well, it's taken from the middle of the book when uh, a donkey called Sylvester goes missing, and that's probably the worst thing that could happen to his parents um, and probably Sylvester himself. And so I like the um, I like that despite what happens to Sylvester, the universe is still doing everything that one would expect it to. And so I quite like the indifference of things to our lives, you know, the indifference of the natural world. Mm.
0: I read somewhere that you're always working on two or three books at a time. How do you do that?
1: Um, Well, I don't know why I do it, because I don't particularly enjoy it. Um, I think that I just started, and then the books – The books have to be, they keep going, and the editing is endless. And um, I don't really know why I do it. Um, Yeah, I suppose because I finish a book and then an editor has it for three or four months, during which time I start a new book. But then the editor comes back with edit, but then I don't want to give up the book I'm currently working on. And if this happens a few times, before I know it, I'm juggling several books, which is not pleasant,
0: Mm, But it makes sense. I understand that you finished writing Night Came with Many Stars a few years ago in 2018. How do you remember your intentions and thoughts about writing three years later?
1: Um, I don't really have any intentions, uh, which is probably why my books don't sell as widely as um, some of my colleagues' works. Um, I simply... I write quite unconsciously. It's almost like, um, it's almost like uh, dreaming. I don't really, when I go to bed, I mean, there's certain things I'd like to dream about, but um, what I dream about is not really within my control. And I know that some people write and feel like everything is within their control, but I'm the opposite, really. The only control I have is in the editing. So whatever my imagination gives me, that's what I work with. And then my skills, what few skills I have as an editor, I employ to make as powerful as possible the gift of my imagination.
0: Mm. So this uh, night came with many stars. is set in the South. You were raised in Wales and <laughs> the, country, uh, the countryside yes. around Oxford in the country. Yeah. And then... You ended up with a, a a rugby scholarship to Kentucky. So, could you talk about that? How American that football. was? Um, uh huh. Yeah, so
1: American football. It wasn't football. rugby. It, it was American. No. Oh yeah. Um, and that was interesting. I mean, but you know, the 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 shelf I had in my locker wasn't large enough for all my products, so. You know, I knew my football career wasn't really going to go anywhere.
0: <laughs> but you stayed in college. You played all through college.
1: No, I dropped out of college. I, I just I found it a bit tedious, and I, I, I. Uh, the few friends I had were not in college, and or uh, they were about to drop out of college. Um, I found the world more interesting than college, so I left, and then I. I went and studied uh at other colleges, just taking courses really uh, and then I went back to university but in England, but I was very unhappy, so I dropped out yet again of my third college and then um I went to an art school and I was really happy there
0: okay so so then you're it's a a writing degree
1: no, it's a it, well kind of yeah, I don't really know what it is. art school there weren't really any classes you just they gave you a project and you had to do it then you just had to check in from time to time with your teacher who may or may not be in the country um and um but it was a wonderful environment i learned a lot from other artists much more than i learned from the teachers
0: so interesting and you set this particular novel in the south and uh you really got the cadence and the language and how'd
1: you do that? Um, I suppose because I really love music and, and, um, speech is a type of music or at least the way it reaches our ear. Um, it could be compared to music in many ways. And so I suppose just mimicking how people speak and I can even, I can, I've always been able to do accents and, uh, so I would just sort of, you know, become the characters myself, and or try to at least, and then I would speak the way they would, and I would employ only the vernacular and the rhythms, and the, I became quite obsessed with it actually. But there's only so much you can do in the book because then you start to think about, well, should I write it in a way where the person who's reading it is forced to pronounce it a certain way? But like Irving Welsh and Train Spotting, which for anybody who doesn't speak Scottish is it's completely unreadable. Um, But I thought I wouldn't do that because essentially, you know, a a novel is a collection of compromises. And so I had to do something that I felt would be a better experience for the reader instead of trying to decode Kentuckian.
0: Mm -hmm. So I have a question. Why did you decide not to use quotation marks in the novel? Um,
1: a couple of my favorite writers did it, and I thought it was quite nifty. I thought it looked quite good and quite modern. Uh, but then my daughter told me it was a very bad idea, and I'd made the wrong decision. And um, and on hindsight, I happen to think she's right. And so from this point on, I shall be going back to quotation marks. Okay. It was a mistake. Well, was... I shouldn't have done it.
0: It was a good experiment then.
1: Yeah, and that's all really art is. It's just one experiment after the next, but... You always learn something with each experiment. Um, and if you can somehow convince people to pay you to do it, then it's fantastic.
0: Yeah. yeah. So why does old man Walker, whose kindness saves the, uh, your protagonist, mm. why does he warrant only two sentences of description?
1: Um, I don't know. I mean, I really don't know. That's just, that's just all I wrote, I suppose. Um, I mean, if Joshua, my editor, had said, "I think it needs a few more," then I would have tried it and see if it worked. But um, it's just such an unconscious process. I think I'm the only person writing at the moment who isn't consciously trying to like include things that are fashionable or trending. Or I just really don't care about that. I'd rather, I'd rather, you know, I mean, I'd rather work at McDonald's. And I'm actually quite. <laughs> I don't like fast food, so not that it, you know. No disrespect to people who work at, at McDonald's, but uh, I don't particularly like fast food. And also, people think it's a Scottish restaurant, and when they get there, they find out it's not. I think they're disappointed. But I'd rather work at McDonald's. Simon. Yeah.
0: Who, who thinks it's a Scottish restaurant? McDonald's. Well, just the name,
1: right? McDonald's.
0: Oh, nope. Never thought of it that way. Oh, oh, oh. So um so like campbell soup
1: okay scottish soup
0: right that's also
1: no i don't think it is but people might think it is based on the name
0: maybe maybe people in great britain think so but in america i think i think we're kind of used to it just like oh another american name yeah probably because of
1: andy warhol
0: probably yeah despite her upbringing carol showers her son with love can you Hmm. say more about rusty
1: yeah, he, I mean, Rusty. I just sent him um, something for Christmas. Actually, the real Rusty. I mean, all the characters are based on real people. Oh, they're oh, all tell us living about that. right now. Well, they were this morning, but um, um, Alfreda, the real, it's their real names too, but it's a different surname. But Alfreda told me, um, she said, Rusty sits on the porch all day, hoping the mailman will bring him a Christmas present. So, oh. Um, but he, Rusty really is a, I mean, he, he's, I mean, I don't know if he has autism. He hasn't been diagnosed, but I mean, he fits, he fits all the criteria for autism, for a type of autism, um, in that he can remember the the weather on any day since he, you know, was about five years old, um, mm. and he can remember, and he can untangle, pieces of string very, very quickly. Uh, And he can count (laughs) spokes on a bicycle wheel very quickly.
0: Did the real Rusty also have trouble with his legs and trouble walking?
1: Yes, he did. And in the basement of their house in Kentucky, in Litchfield, Kentucky, he has his original leg shoe things, the things he had to put on. I suppose the, the prosthesis.
0: Okay, wait a second. So all of these people are real people. Are the si- but the situations are also based on truth? Or most of you, them, invent- yeah,
1: most of them. But I had to call it a memoir because you know how people are today. Um, you know that I I just couldn't risk people saying, well, you know, they didn't, they did, they wouldn't have done that, or they didn't live there in that particular. So I thought I'll just call it a novel and hope people assume that a lot of it really happened but also how things happened is also a kind of fiction because remembering itself is a creative act um so in order to not get in hot water um with with what young people call haters um i decided to call it a novel and not a sort of memoir of this particular family but the um bessie is based on my grandmother actually Um, so she wasn't from kentucky she was from somewhere very far away from kentucky but not unlike kentucky in how people um have to stick together because they're very very poor uh and in some ways disenfranchised um, so and then carol's father was a sort of a conglomerate a sort of a, a patchwork of all the unpleasant people i've met in my life i've had the displeasure of meeting um mm. And there's very, very few. There are very few truly unpleasant people, I think, in this world. Um, but he, Carol's father, is certainly one of them.
0: Well, what about Eddie? He who, he seems destined for a fall from the very beginning, and it and it feels almost personal. Yeah. So, who is he based on?
1: Well, I feel like Eddie could be based on on many people, myself included. You know, when I was seventeen, eighteen, nineteen if I'd taken one step to the left, you know, one step to the right, or, you know, if I'd done something reckless, you know, it doesn't take much to put somebody on the wrong path. And then, you know, their friends and their family help them get off it. But um, I feel like um, there's sort of a, there's a real epidemic of bad parenting, I think, at the moment, you know, parents who sort of either checked out emotionally or checked out physically from raising their children. And so I don't think children, you know, they find their own family, whether it's a gang or, you know, or something else. But um, I feel like Eddie's mother obviously has completely let him down in a way that many people who may be listening to this also have been let down. And you just have to forgive them, I suppose, and not make the same mistakes. But, yeah, Eddie, poor Eddie. I mean, everything's against him from the start. But he does have love and friendship from, from Sam.
0: Yeah. When Samuel stop, drops out of college and starts drinking, it, it feels connected to Carol's father. And, of course, you know, there's yeah. that genetic component to it, right. alcoholism. So what about Samuel? What can you say?
1: Um, Samuel's been, the real Samuel's been one of my best friends for a long time. And, and he said he had to stop reading the book in places because it was just so emotional for him. You know, the car accident when he rolls the car into the river and mm. uh, and also you know being hit in the eye, you know those are real things, so he had to it really took him back. he said so it was it was quite emotional um but I said, well, that's great I mean, I'm sorry for you, but i'm I'm really pleased because that means I got it right <laughs> but you know we've been friends a long time that we can talk to each other in that way,
0: but um. But, Simon, does that mean you're the Eddie in this oh, in relationship? In some ways,
1: yeah, in some ways. I mean, like when I was on the football team in Kentucky, I was friends with a lot of Cherokee people. Um, and, uh, who you know, who, and so I did get a lot of, I mean, I did get a lot of stories and I met people's families and things like that. But I suppose Eddie is any good person or someone who means well in the world but somehow they get sucked into this kind of web of, of what Shakespeare would consider this web of sin, um, you know, by just being around a sin, which is contagious in the Shakespearean sense. Hmm.
0: Okay. So Bessie, you're, who's based on your grandmother, what did your grandmother uh, run a house for unwed mothers? Did she help? What did she do?
1: Well, actually, no, she didn't. But her attitude, just her, 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 her whole personality is Bessie. I mean, like you know, and Bessie says, "Well, you know, if they killed him, if they murdered him, I hope it was for Christian cause." You know, my grandmother was very like that. Um, she always said, "You know, when you go to school, remember that attack is the best defense." Um, so there was no punishment for fighting. But there was a sort of disappointment if you lost a fight. Um, so she was tough. I mean, she grew up in a very tough environment. She ran away from an abusive husband with my mother and her two sisters, you know, when my mother was about eight. Um, so, you know, my my grandmother was a real survivor. And to some extent, my mother was too. You know, in, in, a, in an emergency or in a crisis, my mother's fantastic. But in peacetime, she doesn't know what to do with herself, you know. Hmm.
0: So, Harold and Marjorie. Carol Mm. doesn't know how much her life will change because of them. Who are they?
1: Harold and Marjorie are actually fictional. Um, They're, I think, the only two people who who really aren't based on anybody. Um, Well, I can tell you who they're based on because it's just you and me, so no one's listening. Yeah, it's just our private (laughs) conversation. But um, just kidding, you know, so they're based on actually a, a couple from an Australian soap opera in the 90s that I was addicted to. I mean, I love soap operas and so much so that I'm always paranoid that a critic is going to say that my books are too soapy. And I would just like, you know, when you you get you feel like you've left the gas on and you're like, oh, my God, I've left the gas on or I've left the door unlocked. And you have this sort of weird light feeling in your stomach and you don't know whether to go back or go on. If a critic said that about my books, that they were like soap operas, then I would have that feeling. But, you know, I suppose, which is ironic because I like soap operas so much, you know, it only takes 60 minutes, 60 seconds of viewing before I get hooked into a soap opera. Um, but anyway, there, I was uh, hooked on on um, Australian soap operas as a boy. And so um, this particular soap opera had a character called Harold and his wife Marjorie. And I really loved them. I always wanted to go and live with them um, in their fictional suburb in Australia. Um, but there are lots of poisonous spiders in Australia, so I'm not sure that it would have worked out in the end.
0: Possibly not. I, I noticed that no. you write almost affectionately about so many of your characters, and now I understand it a little more. But did you have a favourite in the book?
1: Good question. Good question. Um, I like Heather.
0: Mm, yeah.
1: I, I like Heather because she's achieved something that I haven't. Uh, well, I mean, she's achieved something that I find admirable and I would like to achieve, but I haven't been able to and I'm not sure I ever will, but I really want to. So I think Heather.
0: Which? What is it that she's achieved? Oh, she believes in to? God. Ah,
1: Um, I I would absolutely love to believe in God, but I I can't, you know, it's like, I just can't, I just can't, there's too many, there's too many dead end streets, I find myself, when I go down a sort of thought experiment, and I just haven't been able to make that leap of faith. And whenever I ask anybody, it's like talking to an academic, they just quote the, the Bible or the Torah. So I can't really get any real answers through logic. Or And I know, some people try and prove the existence of God through math- mathematics, but I'm I'm not very literate when it comes to mathematics. So arithmetic is fun, but not mathematics. So I would love I really enjoy Heather because she's so faithful and she's so loving. She embodies the perfect Christian, um, and I really admire that. And I just yeah. So I like I like. Heather. Oh, she's fantastic.
0: wasn't that weren't there other characters who were also committed and. Um... Religious and yeah, some, yeah, uh, there are, best belief,
1: for one, yeah. yeah, but but Heather's religious in a, in a way that's not dogmatic. Um, she doesn't, I mean, religion, unfortunately, all well, the modern religions are so exclusive, and in that way, they're sort of dangerous because if you're not in it, then you're out of it, which is problematic. So, um, so Heather, though doesn't sort of embody that dogma what i mean by that is she's in it but she sees everybody else is in it but they just don't realize they're in it and i like i like that about her she's magnanimous um and she'll always she'll probably have a long healthy life because apparently people who have faith like that really do have it's very good there's a lot of health benefits it's salubrious faith is salubrious so um
0: Good to know. Good to know. So, uh, Simon, what are you mm. working on now that "Night Came with Many Stars" is out?
1: Um, I just finished a book, a sort of comedy about um, terminal illness, um, which is called a the comedy.
0: Pro-
1: <laughs> yeah, because the thing is, I mean, when you think about when you think about everything, you know, it's hard. Thinking is very hard. I think it's very hard for me because you start thinking about something, and then other thoughts start barging in you know, and trying to take over. So luckily, though, there's writing. So you can kind of write things down and try, and try and think, keep a thought going. Because, what you know, a thought is like walking down a corridor and then the deeper you go, then all these doors start opening because the thought wants to branch off into other areas. But then it's very hard to simultaneously consider to be in all those different rooms at the same time while being in the corridor. But hopefully, thankfully, there's, there's writing. And so this book, The Presence of Absence, um, is really about, it's about somebody who has a terminal illness, or they they, they realize that they're going to die in the in sort of the ancient Greek way where people apparently before Prometheus knew that they knew the time and date of their own death, and it caused them enormous suffering. And it does cause him suffering at the beginning, but then he realizes that, Actually, the dead don't suffer, they get off easy. It's the living that suffer, and so he starts seeing an end of life therapist in order to find a way to help his wife also not die when he dies because they're very, very close. So it's sort of a comedy, really, because when you realize you're going to die and that you're not really John or Helen or Mark or Simon, you really are just have been just you're just that's who you think you are, but you're not really them. That's just the sort of like person person du jour. You know what I mean? Like I'm not really Simon. I mean, you're talking to somebody called Simon, but and Simon's the hook I carry myself on through the world, but I'm not really Simon. I don't really know what I am, to be honest. I'm just sort of a weird mass of energy, and I can't quite explain it. But when you get to that point of thinking, everything – isn't frightening anymore or the things that traditionally frightening are not frightening. They're sort of funny. Um, So that's what that book's about. Um, It sounds stupid. I know I I make all my books sound stupid. It's not intentional.
0: (laughs) I didn't say that. No, I I can tell. I (laughs) listened to myself. I was thinking thinking we're just going to have to wait to talk about that book where we can discuss uh, whether life and death. We'll, We'll discuss life and death when we talk about your next book, okay? Yeah, thank
1: you, but uh-huh. yeah, but writing that, I, you know, was very difficult because um, not technically. I mean, it was technically, but I enjoy that. It's you know, I enjoy the, the technical puzzles, you know. But um, why it was difficult was because I, I'm a real hypochondriac. I mean, um, you know, I read oh. about. I mean, I keep a list of the best hospitals. When I travel, I put the address and phone number of the hospital where I'm going. And an alternative hospital in case that hospital's on diversion. So you know, I have all this of hospitals all over the place. You know, um, and you know, hospital for me is like a, it's you know, it's like a it's like a hotel where I can feel safe. But um, so I'm such a hypochondriac that writing a book about terminal illness. I started to become obsessed with health and then I was checking my blood pressure five times a day. And I thought, (laughs) what if this is some kind of metaphor, you know, and you don't want to be, (gasps) you don't want to be on NPR for, you know, for the wrong reason, you know, because an author writing about terminal illness finds out that he's terminally ill. So I started going to all these specialists. I didn't tell them why, you know, obviously they think I was, you know, had a problem, but, um, um, so anyway, but I'm fine, and I'm fine, thanks. Oh, yeah, was no, 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 Well, as far as I know, as far as I know, I haven't, the pancreas is difficult to get to, but... Uh, <laughs> hey, Simon, okay.
0: thank you. I look forward to talking to you next time. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Oh, you're very welcome.
0: And thank you for joining me. Again, this is GP Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books in Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I've been talking with Simon Venboy, author of Night Came with Many Stars. Thanks for listening, and I hope you're always immersed in a juicy novel. Happy reading.